0: Amen, amen. Hey, grab a seat, and as you do, grab a Bible and turn to Malachi chapter 3, if you would. If you need a Bible, there's one somewhere under a seat close to you, and Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. We have, uh, I think, this week and next week left in our Malachi study, and uh, uh, so join me there in Malachi 3. As you turn there, um, let me state the obvious. It's bad when you're going the wrong way. And it's worse when you don't even know that you are, right? Who remembers driving in days pre-GPS, right? GPS will reroute you instantly if you get off in days pre-GPS. You could drive a long, long way in the wrong direction before it sometimes even knew you were headed in the wrong direction. It's bad when you're going the wrong way. It's worse when you don't even realize that you are. I say that because uh, in our passage today, right away in the first verse we look at, um, we're going to realize that God's people are headed in the wrong direction. And uh, we've known throughout the book of Malachi, as we've studied each of these passages, that uh, God's people's hearts do seem far from the Lord right now. Um, but God is going expi- to explicitly call them out for Uh, their waywardness, for their running away from him. Um, But then uh, at the end of the very first verse we look at, we're going to find out they didn't even know they were going in the wrong direction. Uh, In fact, let me not just talk about it. Let's just read what it says. Uh, Malachi 3, verse 7. It says, From the days of your fathers you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And so the Lord looks at his people and he says, return to me. This is the Old Testament word for repent. Repent. Uh, Do a 180. Turn around. You are running away from me and I'm begging you, I'm pleading you out of my love for you that you would turn around and you would come back to me, that you would return to me. He says, return to me and I will return to you. Uh, We know that the Lord is unchanging in his nature, right? He doesn't deviate from us. We deviate from him. And he says, turn around and come back to me. I am where I have always been, but you've wandered away from me. Return to me, and I will return to you. But at the end of that verse, there's something so telling in the response of God's people there. They say, how shall we return now, the, the nature of their question isn't, yeah, we know we're lost. We know we're going in the wrong direction. We're asking for some steps on how to come back to you. know the nature of their question is repent. Who? Us? Like you're talking to us? We need to return? God, we didn't leave. Why, do you, why are you saying that we left? How shall we return? And um, the next couple verses, uh, starting in verse eight, the Lord is going to uh, get very specific and he's gonna, put, uh, he's gonna put his finger on one area of their life that is a key indicator, one area of their life that's a, um, uh, that just is a telling sign that God's people are wayward from him and they're running away from him and they're making a beeline far away from him. And we might be surprised uh, in this passage what is that one area? What's that key indicator? What is it that God puts his finger on that says, you want to talk about how you've run away from me? He points out to them the area of financial giving. He's, he's going to go, let's, let's talk about how you've run away. And we're going to see in this passage that God is going to challenge his people to come back to him. And his greatest area of focus in this passage is, um, your, your giving to the Lord will indicate um, where your heart is at. And um, our giving, talking to us now, our giving to God isn't ultimately a financial issue. Our giving to God isn't ultimately a financial issue. Our giving to the Lord is ultimately a worship issue. Um, there may, you know, I'll say this, there may not be a greater barometer or indicator of where our heart is at in certain seasons than Um, where we're at in the area of worshipful giving to the Lord. And now, you know, I already see us shuffling in our seats like, oh boy, here we go, right? Uh, Let me just kind of, let me set the stage with a couple things on today's passage, okay? Uh, First thing I want to say to just set the stage for today's passage. Uh, It's something I've already said. Today's sermon is going to talk a lot about um, where we're at as far as giving to the Lord. But today's sermon isn't ultimately about giving. Today's sermon is ultimately about worship. And uh, this is why, for this reason, the area of financial giving to the Lord is a worship issue. And this is the primary reason that in three and a half years of us being a church, we have preached on the topic of giving, I think, two and a half times. I say a half because I think in one sermon I covered it like a half a sermon. Two and a half times. Why we don't as a church feel this need to do like a stewardship series every year or um, watch the trends of how people are giving go, oh, we better, do the, we better do the giving sermon, right? Because it's not ultimately a financial issue. It's ultimately a worship issue. And so today's sermon isn't going to be about how does the pastor guilt trip us into giving more. Listen, God's not interested in a guilt trip, Right? If this is a worship issue, God's not going to guilt trip us into something here this morning. And so today's sermon is, un- is, is no different than any other sermon that we preach here every week about how do we live all-out lives in the worship to the glory of God our Father, right? And today's focus is on what are we doing in the area of giving to the Lord. A uh, second way I want to set the stage for today is this. Uh, you're going to want to stay for the whole sermon. Yeah, you can laugh at that, right? You're going to want to stay for the whole sermon. Uh, Because if if you're in here today and this area has been a struggle to you to set some consistent patterns and rhythms of uh, giving to the Lord, uh, when we get to point one, you're probably going to be convicted, and when we get to point two, you're probably going to be convicted, and if you if today uh, reveals to you that maybe in your giving to the Lord there's been some some wrong motives or bad motives, uh, as we get to point one, you're probably going to be convicted, and as we move to point two, you're probably going to be convicted, but don't lean over and say, honey, grab the coat. Let's get out of here before we get to point three, okay? It's like, trust me, you're going to want to stay for the whole sermon today. Deal? Now, some of you are freaking out because you're like, oh, we already had to leave early, and is he going to call us out? I won't call you out, <laughs> all right? If you've got to head out for a basketball game or something, you're not going to get called out. Um, but you're going to want to stay because God has something to say at the end of this passage that's so just absolutely beautiful, of what he promises are blessings to those who give uh, faithfully to him. And so today's uh, about this. Three principles that will guide us to a worshipful life in the area of giving. Three principles that will guide us to uh, to a worshipful life in the area of giving. We want this, right? I mean, I know like, you know, None of us in here got up on a Sunday morning and are here to worship the Lord because they only want the Lord to have part of their life. None of us are in here because we want to give God 75% of our life. We're here because we want God to have all of us. And just the reality is um, Jesus talked more about money because if there is any lowercase g God that has the power to go after his kingship and lordship in our life, it is this green stuff you know called cash that, um, that just has the power to do it. And so we're here today because we want to make sure that in every area of our life, including financially, uh, Jesus is Lord, amen? And so let's let him speak to us from his word. Let me pray, and then let's let his word speak. God, help us here today. Um, certainly, Lord, for everyone in the room, Lord, I, you know, some of us can sit here and go like, oh yeah, no, money, money's not an issue, but Lord, we know for everyone in the room, Lord, this will be a challenging, uh, just a challenge from you, and it's a good challenge. Lord, you love us so much that, Uh, You want us to be faithful in every area of our life, and that includes what you've called us to as your people uh, in worshipful giving to you. And so, God, would you uh, just speak to us? Would your word be very clear? Lord, would you give me uh, the ability that comes from your spirit to teach it clearly? And, um, God, would you just uh, show us and convict us where we need to be convicted? Lord, would you encourage us through this where we need to be encouraged? And, God, uh, speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Jump right in with me at verse 8. So the people have just said, return or repent. Like, what are you talking about? We haven't gone anywhere. Why would you call us to return or to repent? God gets right to the issue right here in verse 8. Will man, what's the word? Will man rob God? Now count the robs or all the iterations of the word rob in these couple verses here. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. All right, what do you think the point that God's trying to get across right here is? He's being robbed um how many of you have ever been robbed at some point car broken into house broken into purse taken uh, whatever we know what it feels like to be robbed if you've ever been but to rob means this it means to take something that belongs to another so just let that sink in to rob means to take something that belongs to another this implies that the people here are withholding or taking or accumulating on themselves Something that belongs, that should be in God's possession. This verse right here lays the foundational framework if we are ever going to know the joy of living a life of radical generosity to the Lord. And why it lays a radical framework, when God says, you're robbing me, you're robbing me, you're robbing me, it establishes this. Everything that we have is the Lord's. Everything. Everything that we see in this world is the Lord's. It's all the Lord's. And I know that is so easy for me to get doctrinally, and I can tuck that in my doctrinal kind of filing cabinet in my brain. It can be so hard to really believe it tangibly when I'm holding the things that I see as my possessions, or I'm driving my car, or I'm living in my house, but really believing that everything that we have is the Lord's. What, what establishes this is the Lord's? like, you're robbing me. This is mine, and you're keeping it from me. But all that we have is from the Lord's. Um, This isn't a principle taught right here in these couple verses. This is a principle taught cover to cover in the Bible. Look at what Deuteronomy uh, 10, 14 says. It says, Behold to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth. And then it says this right at the end. With all that is in it. Everything is the, in this world is the Lord's. Every, this world itself is the Lord. The heavens are the Lord's. And I'm not even sure what it means that the heavens of the heavens are the Lord's. All I know, it's all the Lord's. Everything. Uh, Psalm 24 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. As some of your translations might say, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and those who dwell therein. We will never be able to move on to what we're going to talk about in points two and three of where this passage goes, of what God is calling us to in a life of joyful, generous uh, giving back to him what is his, until we understand this foundational framework. All that I have is God's. And this gets at the principle we see all throughout the Bible of stewardship. Um. The principle of stewardship is that god is the owner and we are stewards or we are managers of whatever he entrusts to us so owners own stewards manage owners own stewards manage and now it's really easy for me to begin to believe that i am actually the owner and how convicted I can be uh, can get so quickly when I'm thinking about financial decisions or thinking about purchases of how like rarely at times I go to the Lord with those and really ask Lord like you're the owner of all this do you want like do you want us to do this versus me just saying I'm the owner of this and I'm going to do it that's a backwards concept He owns we manage it's all His He's entrusted whatever He's entrusted to us for us to steward once we get this. We will never again say, I give to the Lord my money. We don't give to the Lord our money. We give back to the Lord what is already his, and he has entrusted to us to steward. And those are massively different foundational understandings. Are you all with me, church? So, I know, because even as I was working on that this part of the passage this week. Uh, I know there's probably for some of us sitting in here a a tendency to right now want to go, but I've worked hard for this. I've told you many times, I grew up in a home of a a small business owner. We watched him, I watched him start the company. I saw the work that it takes. Um, You know, he works 15 to 16 hour days right now just because he loves what he does. And he's worked hard. My dad's worked hard for that company. And right now you're going, but I've worked hard for this. Like, I've worked hard for these things. And I've worked hard to uh, provide for my, ham, for, for my family. And, it's, man, it's hard to kind of come to terms. That, like, this is ultimately the Lord's. And, like, I know you've worked hard for that. And there's no taking that away from you. Uh, some of you might want to go, but, no, you don't understand. Like, Pastor, I am a self-made man. Or I'm a self-made woman. Like, I came up from nothing and we grew it to this, and I would just lovingly look back at you and I'd say, none of us in this room are self-made men and women. We can think we are, but Scripture tells us what do we have that was not given to us. The Lord has been so good to us, amen? That he would entrust something. Some of you, you know, I'm looking out here and I see, you know, some of you own your own business. Some of you have been given amazing careers by the Lord. And, and like, you know, it's so easy probably at times to just go, man, man, look at what we have. But, like, when you stop back, I know you. When you stop back and you look and you go, look at what the Lord has done. Look at what the Lord has done. And this is all his. And so uh, to set the stage, let me give you the first point. Then I want to give you a practical challenge on this point. point. First point is this. All I have is God's. All I have is God's. So to keep what God says to give is to rob him. To keep what God says to give is to rob him because it's all his to start with. And so let me give us just a very practical um, challenge on point one here. And I really would challenge you to really do this. Like your kids in the back seat are going to go like, mom and dad, why are, what are you doing right now? But I really want you to try this. When you get in your car after church today and you put your hands on the steering wheel, say out loud, Lord, this car is yours. Say it out loud. I know, you're going to look a little crazy. Say it out loud. When you walk into your house today or your apartment, wherever you're living, your dorm room, say, Lord, this house, this apartment, this dorm room is yours. When you open your banking app this week, Look at it and say out loud, Lord, all of this or <laughs> this little bit, it's, it's all yours. Like how quick I am and I'm just speaking from when that account grows to feel some sense of, oh. and when that account shrinks to freak out instead of just say, Lord, it's yours. You know, you see it. What do you want me to do with it? It's all yours. But just say that throughout the week. Every time you come across a possession and tip and really say it with possessions, you hold very valuably, Lord, this is yours. And it lays this foundation for us to go, to not withhold anything that God might be asking us to give and not be a part of robbing him. Now, uh... I know none of us in here want to be guilty of divine robbery, right? We know that we're probably on the wrong end of that if we're we're taking part in something to rob God. And so what do we do to ensure that we're not a part of divine robbery? God gets right to the point, verse 10, directly to his people. It's simple, it's clear, it's direct, it's right there. Verse 10, bring... The full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So he's just said, You're robbing me, 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 you're robbing me. me. Okay, what do we do? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there might be food in my house. Now, um, if you've grown up in church world, you are more familiar to the word tithe than if you didn't grow up in the church world, most likely. Um, A tithe means 10%. And so often when you hear sermons like this or you hear Christians talk about a biblical principle of giving to the Lord, you'll hear references of a tithe or 10%. Um, I want us to understand because we can read that passage and we can just kind of assume, okay, what God's telling his people there, you know, when harvest is done, bring 10% of your crops and boom, we're good. We have to understand the intricacies of the tithing system, the Jewish tithing system, because it's a little more in-depth than maybe our thinking of just kind of like 10% off the top, you're good. And so let's talk about a bit about the Jewish tithing structure. And let me be the first one to confess, this might be a bit overly simplified. It's actually very in-depth, but I think this will get us at the heart of what the Jewish tithing structure looked like. So, Jewish tithing structure. Uh, there was first a tithe to provide for the Levites. Remember, the Levites were the tribe that took care of all the uh, temple, uh, they took care of all the temple services. The Levites were the tribe that the priests would rise out of. And so there was a tithe to provide for the Levites. When they came into the promised land, the Levites were the only tribe that weren't given an inheritance of land. All the other tribes were to tithe and provide for them. This is why God said, you know, we, we can read, like, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. What? Food. They're literally bringing their harvest. They're bringing food. Uh, J.D. Greer is a pastor in North Carolina. He's got a great story. Um, He said, man, when our church started, we were reaching college students like crazy, He said, which was awesome. Our church exploded in growth, but it was all like college students. And so we were wrestling, like, how do we, like, financially float? Because college students aren't exactly like, you know, they don't have money to give. One college student one Sunday dropped his egg McMuffin in the offering plate. And he's like, Here, here's all I have, man. Here's an egg McMuffin. That's all I got. I love that story. And, but this is what would have happened. They would have brought their harvest. They would have brought food into the storehouse to provide for the Levites. So uh, 10% would go to provide for the Levites. And you're like, great, boom, there it is. There's the tithe. Watch this. There was also a tithe to provide for temple services and feasts. You know all those feasts you read about in the Old Testament? How did, how did they pull those off? Well, there's a tithe to provide for all the things the temple would need and for all the feasts that would happen. And you're going, whoa, okay, look at this here. And then, you're like, and then, and then, every three years, there was a tithe to provide for the poor. So every three years, 10% of your income would be part of a tithe to provide for the poor, and so, like, I think uh, we can at times, like, unthinkingly go, yeah, it's principle of tithing. Take it from the Old Testament, plug it into the New, and go 10%. Here's what we got to know. A faithful follower, a faithful Jew, um, under Mosaic law, wasn't just giving 10% of their income. They were giving somewhere in the range of 23 and a third percent of their income every year to the Lord. All God's people says, say what? Right? Right? <laughs> When God says bring the full tithe into the storehouse, this is all that he's getting at here. Now, um, let me say this. And what I'm about to say, let me let me just preface it. There are good Bible scholars out there who differ with me. There are good Bible scholars who agree with my take on this, okay? They're right. The other ones are wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, um, there are good Bible scholars who disagree. Then... Um, there are great brothers I have in ministry who are totally with in agreement with what the Bible says on this. There are great brothers in ministry who are like, no, nah, I disagree. Um, yeah, so don't, you know, don't get all nervous when I say this because we're going to talk about and explain this. But here's what I would say. Christians today are not under the legal requirement of the tithe. We still good? We still good? First service was way better than y'all were with it, okay? Let, let, let's talk about this. The tithing was, something that, tithing was something that was established in the Mosaic Covenant. Um, uh, Romans chapter 7, Galatians chapter 3, the book of Hebrews tells us we're not under the Mosaic law any longer. And so like it is my take as I uh, study the Bible that uh, we are not legally obligated to a tithe as people living under grace. And you're like, who? thank you. Don't have to worry about that anymore. Oh, no, it gets better. It gets better. I love, uh, uh, Paul, let's jump to that Walt Kaiser quote. Think about this. Before I read this, think about this. Don't read it yet. If Old Testament followers of Yahweh under the law were giving nearly a quarter of their income away to the Lord, how much more we, on this side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, should be seek to living a life of joyful, extravagant generosity to God? Walt Kaiser says this, Christians are not governed by any law that commands us to give a tenth of our earnings to God. However, it must be noted that the practice of tithing antedates any provision of the law of Moses. What he's saying there is there's examples in the Old Testament before the Mosaic law is ever given of, of people going, I'll give you a tent. Jacob says, God, God says, I'm going to bless you. And Jacob's like, of all that you get, I'll give a tent. This is what he's saying. There's examples of this that antedate the law of Moses. Another argument often made in favor of Christians' tithing is if it was appropriate under the law to give a tent, Christians will want to give no less than a tenth insofar as we have received and known so much more. How could it be put any more succinctly? So he's saying we're not governed by any law that commands us. God is, not af- God is after a worshipful heart. He's not after some transactional like 10%. Okay, Brock, you're good. He's after a worshipful heart, and he knows once that framework, that foundation is laid of going, God, this is all yours, and once he has our heart, we will literally say, God, what do you, this is all yours. What do you want us to give? It's not just some unthinking transaction of 10%. It is giving to the Lord whatever he has said to give, and this is where I believe the New Testament model and framework of giving is laid out best by Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So study that this week, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 through 8. He says, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know what I think the New Testament command to Christians is? Joyful, generous, open-handed, worshipful giving to the Lord. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And so if you hear me say, if you hear your pastor say today, uh, we are not under the legal requirement of a tithe, and you go, "Who? good, don't have to give any money to the Lord, we've completely missed the heart of it. The heart is how much more us under grace lavishly giving to the Lord. If a full tithe was somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter of an income back then, like I'm not saying it's got to be a quarter of an income for us. I'm not laying down any sort of percentage laws or anything like that. All I'm saying is we better be obedient to give what God has put on our heart to give. And let me get an amen so I know we're all good, okay? All right, all right. Let me give you the second point here. All I have is God's, so I'll give to him what he says to give to him. All I have is God's. So I'll give to him whatever he tells and prompts and puts on my heart to give to him for his glory, for the worship of him, and for the building of his kingdom. Now, I know right now, like, some of us are thinking, like, holy smokes, like, how do practically, like, how do we do this? Because maybe right now you're like, we're already, you know, We are already at like our wits end and kind of the end of the budget. How do we begin to build our life around a framework of generous giving to the Lord? Three, let me give us three thoughts on reorganizing your financial life around joyful, generous giving. Three thoughts on reorganizing your financial life around joyful, generous giving. Number one is this. Seek the Lord to put in your heart what he wants you to be giving. Paul says in this, um, um, give what is on your heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, but cheerfully. Let's get with the Lord and ask him, Lord, put on our heart what what you want us giving to you. I think 10% is a great starting point for Christians. I think if there's a tithe principle in the Old Testament, how much more for us? I think it's a great starting point for Christians. But let's not just unthinkingly go 10% off the top, never thinking about it. It's not even like an act of worship for you. What would it look like? Have you ever um, gotten with the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want us to give? If you're married, have you ever gotten with your spouse and say, what do you want us to give? And let the Lord lead you to something that would be uh, of faith. When he goes, I want you to give away a quarter of your income this year, and you're going, really, did I hear you right, Lord? Like, what does that look like? But we have to start by seeking the Lord to put in and on our heart what he wants us to be giving. That leads us to the second principle here. We then need to get a budget and build the budget around what God has put on our heart to give. We need to first get a budget, and then we build the budget around what God has commanded us to give. Some of you out here, you're like, budget. You're like, I am financially savvy. It's all up here. That's great for you. That don't work for the rest of us, right? We have to get a budget. No one ever unintentionally stumbles into greater generosity. Let me say that again so y'all can tweet that, okay? No one ever... Unintentionally stumbles into greater, generos- greater generosity. Budgets help lead us towards generosity. What they do is, let me give us the third point, and we'll talk about what they do. The third point is this. Live within the means of the percentage left after giving to God what He has said to give, you live within the means of the percentage left after you give to God what He has said to give. So, if the Lord puts on your heart this year, we want I want you to give away 10% of your income, uh, 15% of your income, 20% of your income. You go, how in the world are we going to do that? You now have to figure out how are we going to steward well the living expenses we have on 90, 85, 80% of our income, and you're like, dude, you're nuts. I can't steward our living expenses on 100% of our income right now. That, That must lead us to lifestyle changes as it comes to our finances. We have to put the big rock in first of giving to the Lord what he's called us to give. We have to build all the rest of our finances around this. You're like, no, 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 but what about the mortgage? Yeah, you get a mortgage that you can afford after giving to the Lord what he's put on your heart to give. Well, but we got two car payments, you sell one of the cars, you only have one car payment, you use the rest of that money to give to the Lord what he has said to give. You're like, no, you just don't understand, like this, we can't watch remember remember if you're ready for right now you're going honey get the coat we're out of here no no no. you got to stay for the whole sermon because there's some awesome promises coming from god if we will begin to orient our life around this but i'm just pleading with us christians We can't live like the rest of the world where it's like um, the most lavish house that we can afford and let's, let's, let's drive these awesome cars and then let's spend money like this and then, oh God, here's a dusting of our leftovers, of our crumbs. Let's give to the Lord joyfully what he has called us to give and then we live the rest of our lives around that. Give your pastor an amen. Just want to know we're on the same page. Because it's like, I'm just confessing with you how easy it is to live the other way. Where I just accumulate and spend and then I give God the dusting of the crumbs at the end. But there's something so awesome coming about promises of God if we will live biblically and orient our life around believing all of it is his and giving to him joyfully and generously what he has put on our heart to give to him, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, but joyfully. And there's great promises to come in this. What are those promises? Uh, Look back at verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, And thereby, God says something radical here. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let me give you the third point, and then let me give us some guardrails on this. Third point. All I have is God's, so when I joyfully give what he says to give, he blesses the cheerful giver. All I have is God's, so when I joyfully give what he says to give, he blesses the The cheerful giver. Now, let's put some guardrails and rightly understand what God is saying in Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Because I think there's two ditches that we can drive our car into the theological car into very quickly if we don't understand what God is saying in these verses and what he's not saying in these verses so what are the two ditches we can get in off like if we don't rightly understand malachi 3 verses 10 through 12 here's the first ditch the first ditch is the ditch of the prosperity gospel prosperity gospel is a lie out of the pit of hell you're like, I don't think he was clear on it. Could he be more clear on where he stands on that? It's a lie out of the pit of hell. I want you to see what Malachi 3.10 says. Um, go to, right to the middle of it. And thereby put me to the test as the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more... Come on, say it loud, church. There's no more... There's no more need... When you're flipping through the channels and you stop on some Christian station and there's a guy on the screen going you see the number on the bottom you go sow a seed of $1000 and God'll give you 10,000 back and they all sound like that by the way he'll give you 10,000 back it, I can't have I can't say words strong enough to communicate the absolute apostasy that is God never says give to him and you'll be driving a Lamborghini before the year's out God is not a get-rich-quick scheme. He's not. God, nowhere in the Bible, promises a prosperity gospel. It is a lie. And understand the lie. See the lie. Let your eyes be open if you've believed it. The prosperity gospel is a pyramid scheme in which the prosperity preachers at the top are making millions off of. I don't think anyone else shares my, like... Okay, thank you. <laughs> don't fall into that ditch. That's not what's promised here in Malachi 3. But now let me say this. To us in the room and are probably attending Harvest Bible Chapel because we maybe hold to a more like theologically conservative bent, don't fall into the other ditch. The other ditches, God doesn't make any promises to those who give faithfully. That's not true. Let's not presume on God a prosperity gospel, but let's not grieve God and deny the promises he makes here in this verse to those who will give faithfully. So, what are those promises? So, let's just unpack these verses here. The promises to faithful givers. Promise number one is this God meets the needs of faithful givers. Look back at verse 10b. Um, the, Second half of verse 10. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God has said, I see the needs of my people. When Jesus said, Look at the birds of the air, they don't have barns to store stuff in. Look at the lilies of the field. Look how God has clothed them. If God has cared for the birds like that and he's clothed the flowers like that, he's like, How much more valuable are you to God than the birds and the flowers? So, the Lord saying, the Lord, uh, it's, it's Jesus saying, we, the Lord sees our need. He'll provide for the needs of those who are faithful to him in this regard. Now, I know you might be thinking, like, I feel like we've been faithful in this regard. I feel like we've been faithful for years to give to the Lord. And I don't feel like God's been faithful to meet our needs. I would just challenge you to really do some heart searching to say, are they needs or are they wants? Because I have been guilty over the years of saying, God, what we've been faithful in this. can like, you say you'll meet our need?" And then like, later on in life, because I'm a ripe old age of 31 right now, right? Later, later on in life, I'll go like, oh, that wasn't a need. I thought it was a need in the moment. That wasn't a need. God's faithful to meet our needs. Uh, p- Two, what's the second promise here in these? God protects the harvest of faithful givers. Uh, look at verse 11. Remember, this is an agrarian society. They live off the harvest. I will rebuke the devourer. That's probably a pest-eating, uh, a crop-eating pest, uh, insect. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that, you will, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Most of us in the room here, we don't make our income off the land. Um, there's probably some farmers here, but not a ton. Uh, apply that to your career situation in whatever means you need to. That God protects the harvest of those who will be faithful to him in this matter. Well, how do we, like, I don't know if we can give faithfully because I don't know what's going, you know, and I don't know what's, God, trust the Lord in this. Give to him in this. And he will protect the harvest of faithful givers. Thirdly, third point under the promises here in these verses, God makes faithful givers a people of delight. This is a specific promise to the nation of Israel here, but let's talk about how it applies to so it's Verse 12, then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. He's like, if you'll, be, if you'll honor me in this regard, the other nations around you, they'll look on you and they'll see the, provi- the providing hand of God They'll see my provision. They'll see that I protect your crops from pet devour, you know, the insects that want to devour them. And they'll go, like, how is that? How are those people, how are they surviving this? How, are, how, are they, how do they have such provision of this? And just think about what this promises to us. That if we will be faithful to live off the percentage of our income that God's called us to live off, to give the percentage of the income that God's called us to give us, how he will provide in ways that we cannot even fathom him to provide. And the rest of the watching people will look on and go, how? Like, how? How? And the only answer to that is the Lord. So, the whole sermon in one sentence, here it is. From a heart of worship, and that's the key, folks. Today's not about leaving and you trying to figure out like some transactional, guilt-driven, like, oh, wow, we should probably start giving. No. Today's about worship. From a heart of worship, I give to the Lord faithfully faithfully joyfully generously and sacrificially whatever god makes clear to you and your family that that looks like a life of faithful joyful generous sacrificial giving to him now as we close um if you're serving communion you can head to the back and get ready uh, to serve that and you're going communion how in the world is he gonna tie a giving sermon into communion? Paul has already done it for us. I said earlier that if you want some study out of the New Testament on this, to turn your Bibles this week to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians uh, to generosity. And what I'm about to read you, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, falls within the context and the conversation of spurring the Corinthians on to generous giving and look at what he reminds us of in 2 Corinthians 8:9 for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich He's writing to the Corinthians, and he's going, I just want to encourage you to a life of generosity. I want to encourage you to meet the needs of some suffering brothers that you have over here. And he says, let me remind you, if you need a motivation, let me remind you of something. Consider Christ, who though he was rich, and Jesus was the definition of rich, in the splendor of heaven, yet for your sake he became poor. God came down in flesh. And we say this all the time around here. Born and laid where animals ate. Throughout his ministry, he slept where the homeless slept. He died a criminal's death. And then he didn't even own a place for his body to be buried. Someone had to donate a tomb for him to even be buried. Consider him who traded the splendor of heaven and came down to be the poorest of poor. And then that verse goes on to say that through his poverty we've become rich. So, what a fitting way to end a sermon like this by taking communion and just getting our eyes fixed on the cross and on everything that Christ poured out for us because Jesus' followers, when our eyes are there and when we consider what Christ has done on our behalf, There is something with our eyes fixed on the cross and the resurrection of Christ that will lead us to not be stingy with our money. To not hold on, but to go, Brock, remember Jesus. Open your fist, dude. Meet needs. Build the kingdom. Give it away. He gave up everything for you, Brock, and you're trying to hold on to 100 bucks? Consider him though he was rich, became poor, that through his poverty we have become rich.